It don't matter what I try I just can't win and I don't know why There's a fork in every road I pick the wrong one and then I go American loser, yes I am Disenfranchised from everything well, I fall up and I fall down An American loser the day I was born Hello, welcome back to another episode of American Loser. I'm your host, K.P. Burke. Uh, with me, as always, is my handsome dilf of a father, Larry. Say hello. Hey, hello. All right, we're joined uh, this week. Uh, also, the boss is in the building behind the ones and twos. Kahuna's not here, so we got the boss himself, Mr. Ming Chen. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Hello, everybody. Hey, Ming. Thank you for hopping on this one, man. We're here at a shared universe studio down in uh, Eatontown. You guys take great care of us, man. Thank you for letting us do this. Uh, joining us again here, back by popular demand. There you go. Uh, the meanest girl I know. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lead-in. My sister Carrie has joined us back for a show. So hello, a, everybody. You haven't been here since the electric chair episode, right? No, no. I've been licking batteries ever since. Yeah, also well, true. <laughs> yeah, a little field testing. Well, uh, we got an interesting one today. I'm very excited to talk about this guy because I feel like everybody knows a little something about him, but they don't know the full story. And then I found out new stuff in researching for this one. So uh, this week we're going to go ahead and we're going to talk about a fellow by the name of George Armstrong Custer. All right, I think everybody kind of knows him a little yeah. bit. What's the picture that pops into your mind, Dad, when you hear George Armstrong Custer? Well, ha having done some uh, previous research on Mr. Custer, uh, uh, I think uh, you know he had no business being where he was, but uh, he got what it was what was coming. That uh, was a little Indian uh, Native American payback. That's I always think his Custer's last stand is what we always know him for. That right. uh, you know did not, yeah, definitely not a good thing. I'll put it that way. It's not how you want to be remembered in history. Kerry Burke, what do you know about George Armstrong Custer? You're not a history lunatic like me and Dad. No, I'm not. Um, Dad and I were actually talking about this yesterday. I know very little. I get little bighorn and little round top confused in my head. <laughs> One of them was at Gettysburg, and I think it was a round top. Right, there you go. Uh, and I only know that because we went there on a family vacation once. Yeah. Uh, and had to listen to the auto tape tour over <laughs> and over and over. All Thank the you, way Kevin. back to New Jersey. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'm passionate. What can I say? Um, here's what we're going to frame up here for you, real quick, Kara. So. If you were to design by a blueprint what you would want in like a successful military hero, all right, if you had the, to build the foundation for a guy who's going to have a kick-ass career and be like a truly an American badass, not an American loser as we're going to explain. Um, <laughs> so West Point graduate, all right, uh, you would fight at the battles of Bull Run and Gettysburg, right, some famous Civil War battles. He was present at General Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse. He would go on to become a famed Indian fighter, and he was a Civil War hero, one of the youngest uh, breveted brigadier generals in the history of the U.S. military. The man rode a horse named Victory. <laughs> All right? That was his horse. His name was Victory. Sounds appropriate. And now we're talking about our boy George Armstrong Custer, who, as we know, it doesn't end on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Better to have a horse Victory than my friend Flicker or something along those lines. Right? That's it. <laughs> uh, it'd be great if he rode a horse named Tolerance. You know? <laughs> But uh, so born uh, December 5th, 1839 in New Rumley, Ohio, uh, though his pride would always be considering himself to be a Michigan man. So that's that Ohio, Michigan thing that they have going on over there. Uh, Custer was born to Emmanuel Henry Custer and Marie Ward Fitzpatrick. Custer had two brothers named Thomas and Boston. 
Okay, Boston. That's a terrible name. Was he born in Boston? No. Imagine being from Ohio and your name's Boston. Yeah. Wait, where was he conceived? That makes you wonder too, right? Yeah. <laughs> I do have a friend named Savannah. Um, that being said, uh, the, so the brothers, they all grew up. They loved practical jokes. They were kind of wild boys and stuff like that, but they were all very close. But the Custer family were descendants of a group of people known as the Palatines. Is that correct, Dad? Uh, yeah, Palatines. Okay. So what are the Palatines here, uh, LP? The Palatines were uh, a group of uh, South – let me get this right – Southwestern uh, Germans that uh, that part of Germany was like in a constant state of uh, a battle. Um, the French were invading and back and forth and the, the whole area was pretty much devastated. Um, and they were uh, – the, the Germans in that area were pretty much destitute because of being overridden and, and war-torn, crop failures. I mean, they just really – a lot of suffering going on there. And they were anxious to get out of there. This is right at the time of the, uh, the uh, Reformation, so you're going to factor in some religious intolerance that, you know, you're Protestant, you're Roman Catholic or whatever, that uh, there was a whole lot of it's back very Red Sox Yankees yeah, back then with a yeah, religion. Yeah, yeah with, with people shooting at one another. Uh, more than just uh, throwing beer cans at one another. But uh, um, they were very destitute, and they were looking to, to get out to, to start a new life uh, with the hopes of actually getting to, uh, to America. And uh, it was the English government that t- took in a lot of these, what they thought were going to be predominantly uh, Protestant uh, Germans. Again, it's the time of the, uh, the Reformation. So they were willing to take in um, these German emigrants um, into, into Britain and then were kind of overwhelmed by them that, uh, you know, after a while, was a, you know, a lot of, there was a lot of uh, back and forth within England about this, how we're going to handle all these immigrants. You know, there's a whole uh, situation. They're taking away jobs from the local English and back and forth. So... Uh, the best thing to do is well, ship them out. Um, where do we need people? Well, we need people in the in the British colonies. Again, we're not the United States yet. We're still a, a British possession. So they would ship them uh, off by the by the boatload, um, not for free. I mean, you'd have to. That would give you ships passage to the colonies, and then you'd have to. You were an indentured servant, and you had to work that off uh, once you arrived. That's why we have a lot of uh, strong German communities. Uh, here in the United States, still predominantly uh, New York and Pennsylvania. Absolutely. One of the first major immigrant groups to come over here. Uh, so now these are tough people. The Germans are known as tough people. All right. And I think it's fair to say, especially the Palatines, uh, their whole thing. These are tough people. Uh, Custer's father uh, raised him to be tough and told him when he was having a tooth removed as a boy that he couldn't move. All right. And if, if it bled well, that it would heal well kind of a thing. And Custer sat there coached by his father, this, this badass descendant of the Palatine Germans. And he's sitting there. Uh, they screw up, Kerry. They screw up at the dentist chair. They have to go back in with a pair of pliers and rip his tooth out. Okay. Oh, that's no fun. <laughs> and Custer <laughs> no. sits there well. and just stares ahead. I mean, it was like insane. It was, he just, and then when uh, he was walking away with uh, his father, he was saying, uh, Dad, uh, you and me could probably whip all the wigs in the world. And the wigs being the political party that was uh, opposite to his father's belief. So it was like essentially coming down here and just saying like oh yeah we could beat the shit all the de- you know democrats or republicans you and me mm-hmm. and you're just an eight-year-old boy sitting right. there and talking shit like that <laughs> dad i got your six <laughs> now guess what uh, uh i know my father knows this one uh so uh kerry um when you were growing up okay you couldn't pronounce kevin which is my first name because it's kp burke right? i couldn't pronounce a lot of stuff well uh but what did you used to call me when you couldn't say kevin uh that i don't know 
Nana is what you used to call me. You were real little. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, those types of words are uh, very apparent in my life, like the Little Mermaid being yayo. Yeah, yeah. Because she couldn't say Ariel. Well, guess what? You have something sounds. in common with George Armstrong Custer. Custer could not say his middle name, Armstrong. So the first time that he tried to say it, he it came out as Auty. So, yeah, because he couldn't say Armstrong, so he said Auty. So that was his nickname for the longest time. His wife would call him that later on in life, too. That's, That's you want to talk about a nickname sticking? I got a buddy named Hobart because we nicknamed him after a refrigerator. His wife goes by Hobart now. It's <laughs> Mrs. Hobart. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But anyway, so uh, Audie, kind of a tough thing there. So uh, we move on with that one. But Custer did excel at a bunch of things. He was an excellent horse rider. They said watching George Armstrong Custer ride a horse was something to behold. He looked gallant up there. He was an excellent horseman. Um, now, because of that, Custer decided he was going to pursue a military career. So where do you go when you want to be in the Army? You go to West Point, July 1st, 1857. It was at the time, it was a five-year uh, course of study. All right. But they had to shorten this one to four years. Now, I said 1857, Kerry. What time frame? Is, what do you think is going on in the nation right now that they might need to hurry up the, you know, expedite the training of military officers? Uh, probably the Civil War. Absolutely. Good one. All right, Kerry. Yeah, All those family trips. Yeah, there you go. So they shortened uh, the length of class over there. Now, this one I found fascinating. Uh, Custer graduated June 24th of 1861. Custer was 34th in a class of 34. He finished Ooh, last in his class Jeez. at West Point. If it was Annapolis, he'd be the anchor man. So He's did he like barely in his squeak class. by? Yeah. Or? Well, he had, a, he had some interesting stuff here because uh, he had actually – they said that he would test the rules all the time and stuff like that. But uh, some another weird factoid with that is that he was 34 out of 34th, but 23 other students had dropped out due to academic problems. And 22 others left West Point because they joined the Confederacy. Right, so you got to realize your your the Civil Wars. Was it was it a graduating class of sixty one? Uh, graduating class eighteen sixty one. Eighteen sixty one. So the shooting has already started, and uh, you know a lot of your classmates have already gone home to join up with the opposing army. So it, and the military is in desperate need of uh, officers. So you know, although you they just pushed them. Through. Although you might, yeah, there yeah. you go. And now, like we you said, it was, gonna a, pass, it but was here a, you go. a social promotion kind yeah. of a thing. Well, like we said too, he was born in Ohio, but he prided himself as a Michigan man because he spent most of his youth in Michigan. That's where he was riding horses, all that other stuff like that, hanging out with his brothers. Um, so he was never going to join the Confederacy. There was no doubt about that. Uh, those territories did not care for the South at all. And they did truly treat them like the rebels that they were. Um, but that being said, Custer also liked to test the rules. He, you know, he would kind of slack off a little bit. You know, if you weren't, you couldn't get his attention. You couldn't get him into anything. Custer did uh, have a great quote down there. He said, "You can either be the head or the foot, and I intend to be the foot," which is uh, his kind of way of saying that he's going to be the last in his class, kind of on purpose to see how much he can get away with. I thought he was just going to be the pain in the ass or something, well, or right. kicking the ass. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what it sounds like? It sounds like Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. If you ain't first, you're last, Cal yeah. Naughton. So. <laughs> That's how Custer was firing that one up. Custer, while at West Point, racked up a record 726 demerits and nearly faced expulsion. But like we said, the war effort was going on and they needed these people. It made them too valuable. So he literally got away with murder from the get-go on that. Apparently. You talk about a rule tester. He was was a rule tester. And what are you going to do? Fire me? (laughs) Well, we need you. Yeah. It was uh, my favorite part of that whole thing, too, was just that – like he was testing all the rules on that stuff, and then when he finally got out there and I actually started getting on the battlefield, you could tell he was actually pretty good at what he did. So if you could motivate him, maybe you could have gotten something out of him a little bit more. But maybe he just wasn't good with the books. 
I do yeah, wonder he's about more, that. more of a hands-on guy. All right, right? learn from go. doing, not That's by seeing. It. Yeah, well, well, he loved those practical jokes, too. That's what he was always getting in trouble for over at West Point. But uh, now we're uh, entering the glorious Civil War, the war between the states, or if you live down south, the War of Northern, Northern Aggression, aggression. <laughs> which there is crazy. Um, July 21st, 1861. Now a second lieutenant, uh, Custer, arrives at the Battle of Bull, uh, Bull Run, which there's two battles. He arrives at the first, but also known as Manassas. All right, Depending which is, on whether you're yeah, northern da- or southern. Down by Cousin Pammy, who's listening, I think. So. Right. <laughs> Manassas if you're a Confederate, Bull Run if you're a, a Union guy. So uh, General George B. McClellan, all right, who was uh, a fascinating guy in and of himself, maybe for another episode down the road, took a strong liking to Custer uh, when – McClellan was criticized for being overly defensive. He was a very – he was a pragmatist. He wasn't going to rush into anything. And then Custer has this reputation for diving into things right away. Custer has a thing also known as Custer's luck that uh, kind of plagues him throughout his life. Custer's luck is like where he just – you can't – nothing ever catches up to him. He's Teflon. Nothing sticks. You know what I mean? Right. He did the wrong thing, but he comes out smelling like a rose. Oh, yeah, which is uh, cool in that uh, – in and of itself. But <laughs> So they're going ahead and uh, now Custer um, – he overhears McClellan saying, um, man, I wish we knew how deep that river was. And Custer just heard it and rides his horse straight into the river, right? And then when he's halfway through the river, he just looks up. He goes, it's about this deep, Mr. General, sir. <laughs> now you got to – because this dude's got flowing, long, blonde hair. If you look at every cool picture of Custer, he's got some kick-ass mustache or something like that. I mean, it is – he's definitely a, a character. And now he's standing out even more so. So as we're moving down here, uh, Custer then caught the eye of uh, Alfred Pleasanton who put Custer in charge of uh, leading cavalry attacks, um, which would become his signature thing because we always think Custer and you associate him with the cavalry. Yeah, and uh, just a little side note, too, that at the start of the Civil War, the Confederacy had a kick-ass cavalry. The Union cavalry sucked. All the best cavalry officers were also in the Confederacy, right. uh, one of them being uh, – one of the very best being Jeb Stewart. Right, so, exactly. Um, now, uh, Custer would uh, – Custer was always displaying his fearlessness, and uh, he started being known, like we said, for having Custer's luck, where you said he could um, he could just be Captain Testosterone on a battlefield and make some shit happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Others might say he was a little bit flamboyant or just way out there, you know, stupidity reigns supreme. But uh, again, that's Custer's why I get a kick out of him. Come out. Yeah. yeah, that's why I get a kick out of him, because it's uh, everybody, uh, depending on what your opinion of him is, is how he uh, is portrayed. So if they like him, then they're going to talk about his good quality. If they don't like him, they're going to you know, focus in on the negative. But um, now at age 23, um, Custer was made brigadier general of uh, a unit became known as the Michigan Wolverines. All right. Uh, yeah. Now, Anything, anything about that? Did that name stick around? Well, yeah, it, 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 that's a, a nickname that is still with us today. Many of our uh, colleges and universities, uh, football teams especially, uh, get their nickname or their mascot from back in the day of the Civil War. Uh, just a, a partial list. Howard University, it's named for its founder, Major General O.O. O. Howard, uh, on the uh, um, Union forces. Indiana University, their mascot is the Hoosers. Well, that was a nickname that the Indiana troops had during the Civil War. <laughs> Louisiana State University, their mascot is the Tigers from the famed Louis- Louisiana Tigers or the Fighting Tigers, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia. Ohio State, they're the Buckeyes. That was the Ohio State troops during the Civil War, the Buckeyes. Um, uh, I got a bunch of them here. State University of New York at Albany. Their school's alma mater song calls the uh, area and the state the mother of armies. 
As the New York State Normal School contributed a company of 44th New York Infantry, the Army of the Potomac. Uh, University of Kansas is the Jayhawks. Uh, the Jayhawks, again, were a, a band of free staters from Kansas that battled, uh, battled slavery elements in the bleeding Kansas, a uh, period uh, prior to the Civil War. To be accepted as a, uh, a state the into the Union, right. just for clarification right. there. Yep. Now, what's the, uh, what about the fighting Irish, Dad? You don't think Notre Dame is that? Uh, yeah, well, there was a... Uh, there was a guy, uh, um, uh, yeah, um, from from it wasn't a university at the time, but uh, we had um, uh, Corby. It was a Corby. Get no. your shit together, Al. Yeah, I know. It's uh, he was a uh, he was a guy from the from the from the Gettysburg gave absolution to a lot of the Irish Catholic. Uh, Troops fighting right right before the uh, the major battle at Gettysburg, and who later went on to uh, form Michigan State. Uh, uh, you know what? Nobody's going to name their team after Custer. Custer, yeah. So now, a funny yeah. thing with Custer. Before we forget here, so he's got this group of the Michigan Wolverines. Wolverines, now, and, right? Uh, Custer now because he's a brigadier general, a breveted uh, brigadier general. So that's a, a merit promotion, if you will. Um, he started getting to choose some of his own uniform items. And he made himself uh, distinguishable on the battlefield because he's got this long, flowing blonde hair, big mustache. And he would wear like buckskin jackets and stuff. Um, in theory, he was saying that the people who didn't like him would say, oh, well, you know, he's a dandy. Of course, you know, Custer needs to make sure everybody can tell that Custer's leading the charge. But he also wanted to be able to be found by his troops on the field of battle any time so that they knew he was right there in the thick of it with him. Because his men, for the most part, really did seem to like Custer. He could – couldn't just tie a balloon to himself? <laughs> yeah, that's a <laughs> party balloon. Look yeah, for the yeah. balloon. Oh, there he is. He's the one with the funny hat. He's wearing a safety vest <laughs> while he's out there. Yeah. Um, High reflective. Yeah, that's where regimental flags and everything else were pretty important, too, because uh, in the thick of the battle with the smoke and uh, noise and confusion, you didn't know where you're where you were supposed to be. But if you could find your regimental flag or if you could find your, your commander— uh, that would make life a little a little easier. And I uh, came. I finally came up with the the guy's name it was William Corby. Uh, was founded the um, the uh, university with the Fighting Irish. Actually, at uh, at Notre Dame, there's a statue that's very similar to the statue of Corby at the Battle of Gettysburg. He's got his at Gettysburg. He's got his hand up in the air to giving absolution or uh, final rites, if you will, to the to the men before they go off into the battle. But of course, at, at uh, Notre Dame, that same statue with Corby with his hand in the air—that's fair catch, Corby. <laughs> <laughs> He's calling for the fair catch. Uh, that's perfect. Uh, I'm very happy you brought up Gettysburg too, because now we're actually this is the part of the story where Custer sees pivotal action over at the Battle of Gettysburg uh, during an attack from Jeb Stuart, who we talked about, who was like one of the badass cavalry dudes of the Confederacy. Custer uh, launched a counterattack, screaming, "Come on, you Wolverines!" So. The Wolverine battle cries there sounds like uh, – what was that movie, Ming? That would be Red Dawn starring uh, Patrick Swayze, uh, oh, Charlie yeah, yeah. Sheen. Wolverine. Yeah, Wolverine's Avenge Me. <laughs> <laughs> so Custer did find success on the battlefield but at the cost of 257 of his men, which is the highest cavalry casualties of the battle. Uh, Custer still deemed it a gallant success. Like, oh, you lost a lot of men. He goes, he goes yeah, but did you see how beautiful we looked doing it? Yeah, it w but uh, a little backstory to that, too, is that was right at the time, the third day with Pickett's Charge. 
that Jeb Stewart was given orders to outflank the uh, the Union forces and come up behind him. And if Custer did not stop that, um, you know, it could have been a whole whole different scenario uh, in the world today. With well, that uh, is known Gettysburg. as the high water mark of the Confederacy, Gettysburg. So once it, yeah, yeah uh, well, especially Pickett's charge over there. So um, now, what's really cool is that now this is more times when Custer's fingerprints are all over something that's pretty successful. So. Um, now, Custer uh, also would be involved with the burning of the South underneath the orders of William Tecumseh Sherman when they had uh, – what was it? The total war policy when they were – literally the Scorched burning of the Earth. South. Yep. Yeah. It was impressive there. Uh, now, his military career is outstanding, but I do want to talk about Custer the man a little bit. Um, his personal life is interesting because Custer first met his wife when he was 10 years old. Okay. That's the first time he ever met his wife. And then uh, at, you know, he attempted to court her as he got older and everything like that. But she made such an impact on him you know, at age 10 that he was, you know, I'm going to make sure I keep sniffing around these here bushes a little bit. And uh, <laughs> How old was she? I think roughly the same age, actually. I should look that one up. But uh, Was it a Poe situation? Yeah, it was a, no, very years. far from, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, Grammar school sweethearts, right? right? Yeah. Different kind of She was just poor in love at first sight. Yeah. Well, uh, he attempted to court her several years later. Uh, despite her lack of interest at first, she was not impressed with Custer. She didn't care. That always makes me laugh whenever you – because women don't know uh, how to hunt. They know how to be hunted, so, but they don't understand that that's the difference. So there's a lot of times when women are like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. And they'll be describing their husband and like, oh, I didn't care about this. A story with my mother. My mother makes fun of my father because – dad showed up with a briefcase in grad school and she goes look at this friggin nerd <laughs> and you've been married how many years now uh, we're pushing on uh, 37 37 years of marriage all because this nerd walked into montclair state university with a book bag <laughs> um now uh, that being said uh libby was that was all to hide the, the toys and the gizmos That's, and the little distractions yeah, the comic books yeah and... right absolutely put that attache case cover up in front you could yeah, hide everything hide everything behind that well, you know, the, uh, it was just a smoke screen. The other thing that actually was against Custer was um, Libby's father uh, wasn't impressed with him because uh, Custer's father was just a blacksmith. And that wasn't really – that wasn't a high, highly thought of position. That was like a manual labor. Wasn't gig. good enough for his daughter. No, not for his uh, – now, her name is cool too. She is Elizabeth Cliff, uh, Cliff Bacon. Her last name is Bacon. Can't be all bad. So, was she at Bacon Fest yesterday? There you go. We still Is celebrate. Is she related to Kevin we Bacon? We still celebrate her I, today. Well, now Custer has to find a way to bring home the bacon, guys. Right. See? There's the joke. <laughs> da da dum bum But uh, now once Custer was made a brigadier general, now it didn't matter that his father was just a blacksmith. Now he was actually esteemed enough to be able to court this daughter. And they went ahead and got married uh, February 9th, 1864. And his uh, loving wife... Uh, he nicknamed her Libby. She had been called that her whole life, but in all of his letters, it's uh, to his dear Libby that they wrote all the time back and forth to each other. And she would write to him calling him Autie because right, he couldn't pronounce Armstrong like we said. It's still his childhood nickname, Autie, is still still being carried on. Oh, yeah. And then the other, uh, other funny parts of that, too, is that uh, he was very vain. Uh, people would always say, his critics would say that. But one of the things that they pull for evidence is because uh, Libby would write in some of her letters and you know journals about him that – uh, Custer would like wash his hair all the time. I mean, he was like he was a little bit of a pretty boy. You know, he liked making sure he looked good. There was you know washing his hands a couple of times right after he eat or something like that. So definitely not the um, uh, you know uh, 
for a few dollars more Clint Eastwood's yeah, he on was the, the John kind of Wayne uh, badass, but you know, no. not only washed his hair, but combed combed his long blonde trusses and perfumed his hair. He oh, was, absolutely. Uh, He's got a little uh, Noah Syndergaard, uh, Liam Hemsworth thing going on over here. Are we sure he wasn't gay? Me, well, it's exactly. dandy, and you know. That had a lot of different connotations. That was definitely an insult uh, back then to be called or referred to as a dandy. Um, There's also rumors, though, and this is later on, um, that Custer had a wife with the Cheyenne people named uh, Mona Sita. Uh, not Mama Sita. All right. Not Mama Sita. But Donde es Santa Claus? Exactly. And she uh, supposedly bore him a child. But uh, historians argue that it might have been his brother Thomas's child because a lot of historians believe that Custer had gone sterile from gonorrhea he got back at West Point. Well, All right. Those New York girls. That is a problem over there. Now, especially <laughs> at an all-male military academy. You know a lot of gonorrhea is gone around. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the biographers uh, or people that were following Custer did make a, a note that uh, Custer, during the Cheyenne campaign, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, Custer picked out a fine Indian woman for his tent at night. So this, there is some truth to these, uh, these rumors here, if you will. So is this Dances with Wolves but in real life? Uh, very close, right? I, I, I do believe uh, a lot of that in here. Um, yeah, I think part part of that was probably taken from that, you know, bits and pieces to kind of add credence to that. Yeah. Now, uh, we're jumping around a little bit, so I want to make sure that if you're listening at home that uh, you're following the story here. So we're just talking about his personal life and a couple of the weird rumors. that went, But now we're going back into the Civil War. All right, this is the end. Uh, the high water mark of the Confederacy has already been reached. Uh, they've been repelled down at the, the Battle of Gettysburg. Custer was a huge part of that. Now, in the Battle of the Wilderness and uh, the Battle of Yellow Tavern, Custer further distinguished himself and his enemy, uh, you know, Jeb Stuart, who was the, the badass Confederate cavalryman, uh, was fatally wounded at the Battle of Yellow Tavern. So if you were grading at Custer versus Stuart, then Custer comes out yet again. That Custer's luck is there. Now, uh, they go down, they actually spend their time there at the Siege of Petersburg, which I screwed up and wrote St. Petersburg earlier on. Dad had to fix that. No, we did not invade Russia <laughs> or yeah. South Florida. <laughs> South Florida, yeah. But uh, now Custer uh, was able to move in uh, after being a part of that siege at Petersburg. Uh, Custer was able to move in on Confederates, blocking them from several of their movements uh, around an area known as the Appomattox Courthouse area. Does that sound familiar, Kerry? A little bit. Yeah, so. he was constantly uh, harassing the Confederates. He wouldn't, you know, he was constantly on the, on the attack, on the attack, on the attack that uh, try as they will to try to get a respite or to regroup or reform or resupply. He was always uh, the pain in the ass. Well, now uh, this is where it gets even crazy. You want to be a part of, like, because we always say if you go back in time, you'd love to be a fly on the wall. Mm. Custer is a fly on the wall for everything that's eventful going on. Like I, They always diminish a lot of his contributions to the Civil War, but I really learned a lot about this in here. Uh, he's actually one of the first people to receive uh, some of the flags of truce uh, that would eventually lead to Robert E. Lee surrendering the Army of Northern Virginia to Ulysses S. Grant. Yep. All right, old blood and guts. He know. was at Appomattox Courthouse to witness the, mm -hmm. the surrender. And uh, the table that uh, the surrender was signed on was given to Custer as a gift for his gallantry who sent it home to his wife, and his wife took care of it. It's now existing in the Smithsonian Institute. Right. So that table is still there. Um, now, p two people that are in the room, I want to just lay this uh, groundwork out here. So uh, in an earlier battle, his initial nemesis was Jeb Stuart, who is now dead, died, fatally wounded in battle as a Confederate. But now on the Union side, the head of the Army of the Potomac is Ulysses S. Grant, who would go on to become a president down the road and everything. So Ulysses S. Grant is involved there. 
Um, and they're in the same room together because Lee's surrendering to Grant and Custer's watching all this and literally has the table everything was signed on. More on those guys here in a second. But uh, on April 25th, Custer had his men illegally search and seize a prized horse worth about $10,000 back then, which would be a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, adjusted for inflation today, uh, so that he could ride this uh, prized horse that he literally stole. It's almost like the, the paintings, the works of art in Nazi Germany. That, you know, so Custer has his men steal him this like legendary horse you know, that everybody's been talking about so he can ride it around in D.C. at the Grand Victory Parade at the end of the Civil War. Had, and, had a big parade in, in Washington, D.C. at the conclusion of the Civil War, the Grand Army Review kind of a thing. And, so steal me this horse? Yeah. So, I look, of a so, Porsche I, look good at the, so I look good at the parade. Yes. <laughs> uh, no, and this is also to bolster up uh, Custer's idea of himself that he's this badass, you know, cavalry horseman. And uh, get this, the fucking horse bolts. All right, something weird happens. It causes a whole big scene, but the horse bolts, uh, and it causes like, a very a huge distraction. Completely embarrassing when Abraham Lincoln is probably in the grandstand watching you. He's probably the grand marshal of the parade. On the review, yeah. yeah. You're like, oh, this is – you know, Custer's our big badass cavalry dude. Oh, and, and the then, guy that can't handle his oh, horse. That, that's him chasing <laughs> his horse over there. That's him. That's our badass cavalry guy chasing the horse. Over. But uh, – and he never gives the horse back. He was ordered to. Um, Who did they steal the horse from though? Uh, that it's not said. I believe it was one of the uh, the owners. It was um, it was personal property. Like, uh, but it was probably uh, it down in Virginia. I'm going to guess in the area. Right. That, uh, was it Mr. Ed or something? Yeah. What was so special <laughs> about this horse? horse. Yeah. Oh, Custer. <laughs> oh, Wilbur. But uh, after this now, you have to go down to the Louisiana Territory and start heading west because we're now we're entering – we're out of the Civil War and you're going into the Reconstruction period. Um, but the war is not – the war is officially – Never actually over. There's people down south that still swear it's going. Yeah, at least surrender. Day. But there were still Confederate factions that uh, were going to fight on, and um, there was a group that headed towards Texas to uh, try to revitalize things down there. Well, Texas is a wild place. It always has been. Um, but Custer takes his men out to the Texas Territory during Reconstruction, and uh, during this time, he started having to put down some small mutinies because he's actually well thought of by most of his troops for for the most duration of the war and everything, but. Now, these are volunteers that, for the most part, the war is over you know, to these guys, but they haven't been mustered out. They haven't been told they can go home yet. These are volunteers that are being forced into you know, continuing to serve, and he had to start putting down um, a couple of mutinies within his own men. And, and for the most part, taken further and further away from home. I exactly. Mean, now you're going out to Texas. You, yeah. If you signed up in Michigan and now yeah. this guy's customer is taking me to Texas, come on. I want to go home. It, it gets confusing, too. It's almost like that uh, there was a joke I saw about World War One, where it was uh, the guy from uh, – it's how confusing it is that uh, you're an American and because uh, a Serbian uh, shot uh, you know, a Czech guy, now you have to go to Gallipoli to fight the Turks for Great Britain. So, <laughs> right. But, um, and you really live in Australia. Also true. <laughs> yeah. So uh, now uh, the critics of uh, Custer, now this is where they start to really play up that whole vain dandy and they talk about him as a media personality because, you know, when you're going to steal a prized horse to make sure that you get noticed in your own victory parade, he he did act as his own self-publicist. The Custer was a good guy, but Custer couldn't wait to tell you how good of a guy he was, you know? Um yeah, now, it's enough about you. Let's talk let's, – enough about me. Let's talk about me some more. Oh, uh, it's the best. But um, – so now, as uh, they're starting to muster people out in the following year, Custer was offered a position. So this badass cavalry dude is offered a position as the adjutant general for Benito Juarez's rebel army down in Mexico. 
who's currently going up against the, the emperor, who's, I believe, Maximilian I, I think. So there's now a war going on in Mexico, and they're trying to get Custer to lead the Mexican army because they know that he's a badass and he'll get the job done. His reputation is working, you know. Um, but the U.S. refuses to allow him to take the high-paying job uh, because they were going to force him out of the military if he did it. And Custer didn't want to leave, so he refused to resign from the U.S. military, losing out on a killer job. I mean, that would have been – I don't know exactly what uh, wound up happening with that whole uh, revolution. But keep in mind that Mexico is also uh, under Spanish rule uh, to a certain degree. At certain, so there's a lot of crazy stuff going on there south of the border. And Custer was not allowed to be a part of it because it wouldn't really be a good look for us if the badass American war hero is now like now God in Mexico. Mexico. Yeah, yeah. So, although he would have been large and in charge, which would have been great for him, at least yeah, his stroke that his ego own, a little bit right, more. Exactly. His own self-image. Right. Well, uh, Custer debated a career in politics for a little while, and he actually supported a moderate approach to Reconstruction because there's a lot of people that wanted the South to be severely punished, and Custer was saying, "Well, let's just be moderate about that." Yeah, um, I mean, if, if, when you Somebody assassinates Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you know, there was a lot of people saying, "Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, so we're going to be nice to you now?" You know, you you just cost us how many people died and, and suffered uh, oh, yeah. tremendously. That uh, you're going to pay. You're going to pay. Well, also, we had a very unpopular president now because Lincoln was assassinated. Uh, we now have um, his vice president Andrew Johnson, who had a lot of Southern sympathies. He is now the president, so he was coming under a lot of scrutiny for that too. Uh, a good guy to work your way up to is if you're going to try to appeal to Ohio and the Michigan people is to get Custer on your side. So Custer would speak on behalf of uh, President Johnson. When he was in there, he stayed with President Johnson uh, the entire time that he, him and his wife were in D.C. And uh, he was kind of caught a little bit of nonsense for that. They were saying that maybe it was, uh, it was too convenient for him to not be friends with the president because he wanted to have um, his military career continue to succeed. But uh, he did, in his heart, believe in that moderate approach to handling uh, the Reconstruction, uh, despite how unpopular that opinion might have been. Now, uh, July 28th, 1866, Custer was put in command of the newly formed 7th Cavalry out of Fort Riley, Kansas. You ever hear of the 7th Cavalry, Care? Uh, no. They, got, they are legendary looking. It's a, it's a very famous patch. You would see it, uh, and you'd know exactly what I'm talking about here. Um, so that newly formed 7th Cavalry... Uh, they would fight several wars against the Cheyenne, giving Custer the reputation of being the U.S.'s great Indian fighter. I mean, he's a bad motherfucker, all right? He's kicking the shit out of everybody down there. Now, what were we told you were, Carrie? We, we thought you were Cherokee, right? Cherokee, yes. And that turned out to be a lie. A, a big lie, apparently, <laughs> thanks to the spit hitting the wall. It's a, <laughs> if you don't know, uh, my sister was told – Carrie and I were both adopted and uh, she thought that uh, she was part Cherokee, that we were, we'd brag about that. And it turns out that uh, Carrie is less Native American than Elizabeth Warren. Does that mean I have to give that um, school loan back now? Yeah, no. there you go. But, uh, we won't talk about that. Well, now he's in charge of the 7th Cavalry, George Armstrong Custer now, and he's out there fighting the Cheyenne. But he's actually, again, still testing the rules because he doesn't know what he's doing here. He gets suspended and arrested for going AWOL to go visit his wife. But yet again, Custer's luck. All right. They need him for a winter campaign, so they allow him to come back from his suspension early. <laughs> so the guy just – he knows when he can get away with shit, and he pulls a fast one. It sounds like it. Yeah. He, he was always uh, working it. Well, now, here's the funny part with numbers. Um, you ever exaggerate a story, Carrie? Me never. No. Have you, yeah. ever, you know, you get the people that do that. They kind of they sneak their little shit in here and there, man. Custer wins a battle known as the Battle of Washita River, where he claims to have killed over 103 warriors 
and some women and children. So he killed two people. The Cheyenne say that he only lost 11. So <laughs> yeah. 11 to 103. Somehow. It's a little, yeah. a little bit different. Now, I was thinking about a this. A markup of 10 times is a bit much. I was thinking about this. If he did have that Cheyenne wife, though, um, that he did have a child with, he might have been lying to uh, cover the Cheyenne trail so he didn't have to kill people that might have been her family. I don't know, Kevin. You might be overthinking that, that one. one. I just, you got to make a, you know, you got to see what know. you can you with never these know. people. You know, it's always a thing. Working the life. numbers. Well, you know, what would be good for me to have? How many people do I need to kill to be like really looking like a good Indian fighter? That's uh, <laughs> eh, 111's got a nice ring to it. Well, it didn't. Uh, it certainly helped bolster his reputation even further. Which I mean, that's all this guy is. He's a brilliant. Uh, he's good on the battlefield, right? And he, he's a media personality. People know who he is. He's a famous guy in his own lifetime. But uh, he becomes like I always look at it this way. Uh, Davy Crockett. You know, we always know about Davy Crockett, but everybody focuses on Davy Crockett going to the Alamo. You know what I mean? Uh, it's the same way that uh, you can talk about Anakin Skywalker, but we're always going to focus on when he became Darth Vader, right? right? Uh, so now in 1873, <laughs> what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah, in 1873, Custer enters the Dakota Territory. Okay, which is going to be a very important thing for him. Uh, he begins his feud, if you will, with uh, the Lakota tribe. And uh, the reason why we're feuding with the Lakotas at this time is because gold has been found in the Black Hills, which results in the creation of a little town known as Deadwood. Okay, where Wild Bill Hickok would wind yeah, up getting HBO would not have a series without him. Yeah. Al Swearingen. <laughs> uh, yeah, and just to back that up a little bit, um, at the time period, I mean, Grant is the president, so he certainly knows Custer. And the United States is approaching their centennial, all right? They're, the United States is almost 100 years old, and we're going through this major economic depression. Things were not good. I mean, it's post-Civil War. There was a lot of things going wrong. Grant's administration was not really thought of too highly, and there was has always been suspicions that there might be gold in the Black Hills of the of the Dakotas. Now, when you talk about the Indian Territory or the the reservation, you know, you think about a small confined area. Well, that area you're taking in Montana, you're taking in Wyoming, you're taking in North and South Dakota, and a good chunk of Nebraska. That was kind of like Indian Territory. So kind of small there. <laughs> yeah, it is. There's <laughs> yeah. a few few choice acres. And within that is the Black Hills of uh, South Dakota that, um, you know, there's always been suspicions. Grant sends Custer, uh, you know, with a, a presidential acknowledgement, they send Custer with a thousand guys into the Black Hills under the guise that, oh, we're just looking for a, an army base for just in case. It's Indian Territory. It has been given to the Indians um, through the Laramie uh, Treaty, that they were going to have that forever, you know, forever. And it was going to take, I think, a two-thirds majority uh, vote of all the Indian males um, if they were ever going to change that. So now Grant is, you know, the economy is in the toilet. Uh, a lot of people are looking at him as the bad guy, and they need something to kind of boost things up a little bit. Also, just to reinforce one other thing, uh, Grant also not a popular president because uh, you went from Andrew Johnson, who pissed off all the northern states during Reconstruction because uh, he had southern sympathies and was a, uh, held a lot of slaveholding ideas. And now the next president, 
in order to piss off all the southern states is the former general of the Army of the Potomac right, that, that, that ordered their houses burned. Right. So, <laughs> there you go. Grant, yeah. not a popular guy here. But they are making this move out into the uh, the, the Black Hills area. Now, that's occupied by the, the Lakota and the Sioux. Well, the, the, tribes Sioux, the Sioux is the over overriding umbrella. The, the Sioux Nation is actually compiled of a lot of different uh, sub-tribes, if you will. There's the Lakota, the Dakota, and I believe it's the Nakota, depending on what – I mean, you're talking about vast amounts of territory, uh, you know, pretty much four states. And depending on what section you're from, the east, the middle, or the, or the far west, would determine what – particular sub-tribe of the Sioux Nation you were part of. So you've got the possibility of finding gold out there in the Black Hills, and you're trying to settle these things because you can't – land is invaluable unless people are settling the land. So Right, and now they're sending in Custer with a 1,000 guys to explore under the – again, to find a fort, quote-unquote, a, a fort or a possible post there um, you know, to protect things. And Custer just – so happenstance brings along and pays for two prospectors just to kind of test out what mineral rights might be out there. Um, and hey, sure as shit, these guys discover gold, and that is quickly published, you know, around the around the nation. And now you got all kinds of people who are economically uh, hurting that are, you know, well, I'm trying my luck in the in the Black Hills. Eh, it's Indian territory. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> if there's gold there, it's... Take my it's, chances. Yeah, it's risking it. It's risking it. And then, too, I, I just want to make sure we hit this uh, one other point here. In 1875, the U.S. attempts to buy the Black Hills from the Sioux tribes. So now they know that there's gold in there. They know there's all this possibility. So they want this. So they're going to make an offer to the Sioux tribes. The Sioux tribe refuses. And then the government decides to label them as hostiles. Now, how much, what was the fallout with that one, Dad? Well, that was all, that was a big put on too because uh, there has been um, evidence discovered uh, that is still with us today uh, in the Library of Congress and in the library at, at West Point that there was a grant and a couple of his cronies um, planned this whole thing out that, you know, we're going to send people in there, we're going to send the, the army in there to find out what's going on. Yeah, there is gold there. And then um, we're going to force the Sioux's hand, we're going to force the Indians' hand to start a war so that then we can justify sending in the army and taking the taking the land away from them. So it was another land so grab. They, they so the uh, they offer to buy you out, and then when you say They're, no, they so say— So they offer to buy you out. Now you just can't leave. On, you know— a, a pittance of what its true value is, plus the Black Hills to the Native Americans. That's like sacred ground. That is, that was also their breadbasket, and that's the way that they would be able to get through the various winters and because the the game, the the, the timber, the, the Indians really didn't care too much about the gold, but just for the game and everything else. It was their way of life that was going to sustain their way of life. So they refuse. They're not. They're not going for that deal. Uh, and then the uh, the army under again Grant's directive says, "All right, if you're not back on your appropriate uh, reservations by J uh, January 31st, you're going to be uh, labeled or termed hostiles, and we're going to send the army in after you." 
Now, when did, was this directed or when was this issued, this directive? Like December the 5th. So they had ba basically less than two months in the dead of winter to move, you know, by horseback uh, in the worst time of the year possible to get back to their reservation. So there was a reservation, and then it was Indian, Indian territory. So it's kind of like a Leonard Skinner, won't you give me three steps, give me three steps, mister? <laughs> there you go. There you go. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I want to hop back in over here uh, for a second, because now, um, Carrie, have you heard of the term, or the movie, rather, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I have not. Okay. Um, well, you need to get more culture then. That's um, right. Yeah. Got to watch so, the oldies. Well, now Mr. Custer uh, is... He's now going to have to go over to Washington. He's out here. He is on, I mean, one of the last frontiers. You're out there in the Black Hills Territory. He's leading his men. He's living. He brings his wife out with him a lot, too, by the way, which yeah, is uncommon yeah. for the time. But he really seemed to love his, uh, his uh, wife. But uh, back, in, uh, back in Washington, D.C., in uh, the swamp, if you will, um, President Ulysses S. Grant is getting into a little bit of shit over here. Custer is summoned to testify before a congressional hearing about corruption of the trading post's monopolies. So the trading post is like the only place that, you know, uh, the troops can buy stuff while they're out there in these, you know, the expanding territories. And uh, started to notice that President Grant's brother, Orville, and other traders all seem to hold a monopoly on these posts. So there's a little bit of nepotism, a little bit of corruption over here. The soldiers, Not a little bit, a whole lot. Yeah. The soldiers are forced to buy from, uh, you know, all these places, and the prices are just getting jacked up through the roof. And you realize that uh, former Secretary of War, William Belknap, was accused of the nepotism and corruption in selling the rights to these people. So it's not only are we screwing over our own troops, we're the only game in town. There's no – what did you say earlier? It was like a Walmart thing. There's no price yeah, there's gouging. No, there's no <laughs> going online and buying through, uh, you know, Amazon.com or even the Sears Roebuck catalog. Was it, uh, That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't Two-day shipping. Come That's on. That's right, right. Free shipping. Well, uh, Custer tried to keep uh, the testimony. Uh, he, he didn't want to come to Washington to have to testify, but he was also one of the people that he had noticed this stuff firsthand that his troops are paying, you know, a, a shitload of money for barely, you know, anything. There's nothing special about this. Though. It's just getting – it's like uh, buying gas right now. If somebody woke up from a time machine from 1999 – and so we pay for a gallon of gas right now. They would lose their shit. So I lose my shit today. I mean, I don't blame her. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah. so now um, Custer. But it was either that you either paid paid the price or you did without because you had no other option. It was there was only one place to buy, and that was uh, through the uh, through the army. And the, the same screwing was going on with the Indians in that all these. Uh, supplies and provisions that they were being promised weren't being delivered. So they were leaving the reservation to go out to try to survive off the reservation any way they could because, you know, they were totally dependent upon whatever the uh, the government was going to issue. And then the government was, was withholding all of that. So there was a whole lot of uh, unscrupulous stealings going on. Now, Custer wants this thing resolved, but he doesn't want to be the one that has to leave his men out in the Black Hills Territory and go back over to Washington because he realized that, that you're just going to get wrapped up in the political bullshit of the day. So uh, he decided he wanted to write his testimony, but they said, no, that wouldn't do. They ordered him to come back. Now, he's got a little bit of a feud here going with the President of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who at one time he served under during the Civil War, and they were in the same room together uh, at the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, uh, Courthouse rather. So you'd think that they would be natural allies, but they're getting pissed off at each other. There's a rumor that Custer had Ulysses S. Grant's son arrested for drunkenness while he was serving under him. That one was a little bit there too. But now Custer's causing these problems. 
causing that like uh, nepotism and corruption, all that other shit. And they're saying that uh, it could be the president's own brother, Orville, that's behind all this. So now he gets sent back over to uh, Washington, D.C. He tries to keep his testimony brief and quiet. Uh, he doesn't want to attract a whole lot of attention. He just wants to get in, get out, get back over to his men. And what happens? Media sensation. You know what I mean? He is the, the talk of the town. Uh, his testimony becomes major news. The Republicans hated him, and all the Republican papers were damning him to hell for, you know, Custer, you know, the, the, the dandy thing starts coming back again. The Democrats loved him. So, yeah, the Democrats are painting him as this famous Indian fighter who's got the inside scoop on what's going on out west and everything oh, else. Yeah, here's here's the hero to tell us, uh, you know, what we're doing to our our, our boys out there. Right. You I know? thought he usually liked attention on himself, though. Well, uh, this one would keep him from like nobody likes paperwork. That's what I try to look <laughs> at it as. Sorry, it's, nobody wants to go do paperwork. If you're out there in the field, you want to be kicking ass. You know what I mean? So he's his life's he's not a politic guy. He's he's good at politicking for himself. But he never aspired to that life. So if he's in D.C., that means he's not doing what he wants to do. It's like when a cop's better on the streets than they are, uh, you know, doing paperwork in a building or something. Makes sense. So uh, now um, Belknap was impeached due to the testimony of uh, Custer, and he would later resign in disgrace. Grant is now livid with Custer, okay, because it, it looks bad for him. This is – like we said, he's not a popular president with the southern states for the most part. And he's not really becoming a popular president with the northern states anymore either. That war hero reputation isn't really doing what it used to do for him. But uh, Custer was also writing anonymous letters and articles spreading hearsay evidence in order to support uh, his original testimony. So it would be like anonymous, but it would be very clear that it was like Custer or something yeah. like that. Or they're yeah. backing up Custer's points. He's certainly stirring the pot, but he's just trying to do it through back channels. Well, now, uh, so Grant figures that out. Grant strips Custer of his rank, okay, and denies three requests from Custer personally to meet so he can apologize and try to work something out here with him. And Grant just says, no, like to, to hell with you pretty much. So Grant and him, these two guys now, this feud is getting even worse than ever. Uh, Custer realizes that there's no way to patch this up. He leaves D.C., okay? He wants to return to his unit. Uh, Grant, because he's still in the Army at this point. Grant finds out that he left D.C. without approval, orders Custer arrested, okay? So you're going to arrest you know, another one of your your famed Indian fighter who's a, the president. The big war hero. Yeah, right. the big war hero is now attempting to be arrested uh, by a, a guy that he just testified against that they literally they show that there was corruption in this guy's and you're already an unpopular president. The newspapers destroyed Grant. They started calling him the modern Caesar and asking questions like, "If uh, if General Armstrong Custer, you know George Armstrong Custer, is going to be arrested here, uh, if a war hero like that isn't safe, then who's really safe from the wrath of Ulysses Hiram Grant?" But uh, by the way, fun fact about uh, Ulysses S. Grant: um, his real name was Hiram Ulysses Grant, but they would take your three initials uh, in, on West Point in the military. And they would put uh, your three initials on uh, one of your lapels and on your sleeves and everything. So he refused. He changed his name uh, to uh, Ulysses Hiram Grant, and then they screwed it up in the paperwork and gave him the S. So his S is not actually his middle name. So Ulysses S. Grant is what he wound up becoming. But the reason they originally changed it was because he didn't want his real name Hiram, Hiram Ulysses. Ulysses Grant because hug. he didn't want yeah, he didn't want it to say hug on his sleeve of his West Point uniform. <laughs> Could have been a directive. Hug him. Yeah, oh, exactly. Care Bear. But uh, supposed another, to keep that one under wraps. Come on. <laughs> like I said, so they're calling the modern Caesar, and they demand that he stands down. And Grant, he doesn't want to lose this feud with Custer because he knows it's going to make him look bad. But what would make him look even worse is if he held Custer back in D.C. 
and then that Sioux campaign that they're dealing with out in the Black Hills doesn't work out, that would make him look even worse. Okay. So now we're going to get right. to things are definitely heating up now with the with the Sioux. Uh, there's um, scraps going on back and forth. If he doesn't send Custer, well, how come you didn't send the best guy that you would have to to deal with that? As opposed to you know, if and if they send somebody other than Custer and it, and it goes bad, well, now he's looking like even a bigger fool because well, you you know, I think back to because of a personality conflict. Think back to the the Super Bowl with Seattle. If they had just uh, if they had run the ball with Marshawn Lynch, <laughs> they could have won the game. But instead, they decided to pass because they were trying. Right. You know, they were overcoaching themselves, but. Uh, we're now going to get to the part of the story. This is uh, what I think most people do know about um, Custer here. Uh, you know, you know, with Star Wars, uh, you know, it's going to get good when Luke Skywalker arrives at the Death Star, right? Yeah. Well, now here we are. We are arriving at Little Bighorn. You've heard of that one, Kara? I have. You've heard of Custer's Last Stand? I have. Oh boy, that's Not all Custard. I know. That's all I know. Not that's vanilla custard. I used to call Custer. him Custard, actually. I thought that was his name. <laughs> right. I think a lot of people did, too. The last ice cream stand in Montana. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, the, uh, the Black Hill tribes were to be relocated to their reservations, but we kept breaking every treaty we had with those people. I mean, the Plains Indians were getting uh, the short end of the stick. I mean, there, there was some assimilation with some of the other tribes on the East Coast. There was other tribes that were more friendly. Uh, but the and Plains then there Indi- was the smallpox blankets to just – well, the, yeah, the, that was the Plains Indians too. Out. These are like the Harley Davidson riding Native Americans. You know what I mean? These are badasses. These are these people are one with the horse. It's a, a warlike culture. I mean, they are they're to be feared and admired at the same time. You know what I mean? This is if you were to if you were to set them all up, if the Native Americans were to be compared to like different breeds of dog, you are you're dealing with pit bulls on this one. So right. they're they're gentle, but everyone's scared of them. No, th- this one is uh, you got to pay close attention with these people, man. Um, now what's crazy is that uh, so many of the treaties have been broken here that now by the time we come around to May seventeenth, eighteen seventy six, a united tribe of the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and I believe a couple others uh, started all kind of powwowing together, if you will, pun intended, um, under the guidance of this uh, holy man by the name of Sitting Bull. Have you heard of Sitting Bull, Kerry? I have. I think I did a report on him once in school. Well, uh, Dad, who the well, fuck can, is Sitting you Bull? Take, you can take this section on, on Sitting Bull. <laughs> Only if I have notes. Only if you have notes? Yeah. I uh, don't remember. Sitting Bull was a uh, Lakota. He was a, a Sioux uh, chief. And a lot of people think he was a medicine man, but he was really more of a just a leader, um, highly thought of by his by his own people. They're known as the uh, uh, Hunk Papa Lakota leader. Hunk Papa. Yeah. Hunk Papa. Papa Sue. Not Hunk Papa. So they're hunky? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not a Hung Papa, a Hunk Papa. Um, he's, he's got a, you know, an upbringing where everything that has to deal with uh, the whites has always gone bad for the, for the Native Americans. Uh, he was involved with Red Cloud's War, which was uh, – um, a Sioux war with the with the whites from like 1866 to 68. He was uh, he's a warrior. He's more than uh, you know what you what was commonly thought of as as a medicine man, uh, and he's really good at it. Very brave, leading his own people. Um, he is, as I say, highly thought of by a lot of uh, the other tribes as well, um, and he is able to bring people together um, that through, you know, 
sitting down and talking with other uh, Indian chieftains, um, these are the ones that are kind of uh, assimilated by by a sitting bull. That you know, although he's not making all the decisions, it's not like he's a commander in chief of this vast Indian army, but he's he's highly thought of. He with others, um, um, Crazy Horse. Uh, is another one that is a, a warrior um, that was involved and in, throughout their entire upbringing, anything that could have gone bad or white treachery or trickery, they were they were the the fate of it. I mean, Sitting Bull and and, and Crazy Horse were involved with some of those, you know, Indian battles that you mentioned earlier, Kevin. That uh, yeah, they're kind of coming on to a village and. And wipe out uh, women and children and call it a great battle. Uh, yeah, well, not so much because it was basically old men and women and children that they're that they're slaughtering, and then the warriors were not even around at that particular point in time. So it was. Uh, they took know, the easy way out. Depends who your publicist is as to uh, you know which which side you want to believe. Well, it's like with comedians, you'll hear people bragging, about like, "Oh, I just killed tonight. Oh, I killed tonight. It was great." And you're like, "Oh, that was a uh, that's six people there." Okay, <laughs> right? And, uh, yeah. That was a bar gig, man. Uh, they were there because football was on, not to come see you talk about dumb jokes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, and they uh, weren't even paying attention to you. That's the other part with that. Yeah, uh, but Sitting Bull and, and Crazy Horse were, were both involved with what's going on and leading up to what's about to happen with, uh, with Custer and the 7th Cavalry and going into the, the Little Bighorn. So it's like a, a kind of a pan-Indianism back in the day, like Tecumseh was able to do that during the, the frontier kind of times? Yeah, uh, but at the same time, there were still um, age-old uh, tribal rivalries, more than rivalries, hatred. Um, the Crow Indians were arch enemies to the Sioux. Um, the Sioux and the Cheyenne, up until this point, never really got along, but they had now the common enemy of the white that... Uh, you know, they would combine forces to uh, face the common foe kind of a thing. And the, the Crow actually sided with the United States Army because they wanted a, the assistance of the Army to get all those other tribes out of their territory. Right. So uh, what, a was lot an of alliance that, of convenience, right. not a, a not that they weren't part of the pan-native thing, is that they were more pro-Crow, right. if you will. <laughs> right. And a lot of the, a lot of the lands that were now... Um, uh, control, if you will, by the Sioux or the Cheyenne, originally were Crow. That uh, there was so Sioux Crow rivalry back and forth over the over the years. That uh, you know, again, if you're hating the Sioux, I hate the Sioux, so I'm I'm with you, kind of a thing. Uh, boy named Sue. Boy um, named Sue. How do you do? <laughs> so uh, now on June 25th, scouts find a major camp at what uh, they explain to Custer is uh, known as Little Bighorn. Okay. And Custer intends to attack. By the way, I thought this was cool. Uh, Custer, as most people did, employed native scouts. And uh, one thing I did think was interesting was that Custer liked to sit and eat with the native scouts, that he felt at home with them, that he would like to hang out with them and stuff like that. Um, but Custer was an outdoorsy guy. You know, he, he enjoyed being in the Army. That's what he was supposed to be doing. Um, now, Custer intended to attack the camp the next day when he was down over there a Little Bighorn, but he feared that now that the natives knew he was there, they would flee. So he makes a knee-jerk decision, all right? You ever make a knee-jerk decision, Kerry? Oh, many times. <laughs> Did you live to regret? Well, Custer didn't live to regret it. Nope. He decides to go ahead and make the attack. Yeah, uh, you, but Kev, you know, I think there's uh, at a point that we ought to throw in here, too, that um, prior to that, 
on, as early as June 17th, 1876, right? So just, you know, a couple of weeks before Custer's uh, fate with destiny uh, or meeting of destiny at Little Bighorn, there was another battle that Crazy Horse was involved with with a combined group of approximately uh, 1,500 Lakota or Sioux and Cheyenne in a surprise attack against um, Brigadier General George Crook. Now, Crook was told to join up with Custer as they started out this whole campaign against the Sioux to bring him back to the reservations or, or you know, start the war kind of a thing. Um, uh, that was the Battle of the Rosebud. Now, in terms of the battle, there wasn't a whole lot of substantial uh, human loss, but it delayed Crook from joining the 7th Cavalry with, with George Custer. So, a lot of little things. It's a lot the of details. little things leading up there. Yeah, and so, you know, the Indians just had a major victory uh, to their way of thinking against uh, Crook on June 17th, and now we're coming up to June 25th, where. Uh, Custer is now searching for these Indian encampments. Nobody really knew where they were. It wasn't like you could uh, fly a drone over there. You can't GPS that? Yeah, you can't (laughs) GPS or fly a drone to figure out where exactly they are. And that was one of the things that previous Indian campaigns were uh, having a hard time with is, you know, we want to fight you guys, but where the hell are you? You know, it's not like in the Civil War where the two armies would would clash at, oh, at a battlefield. A pitched battle is what right. that's known yeah, as. Yeah, yeah. That's, um, now, uh, that's good stuff too, man. Uh, now we're getting into uh, Little Bighorn itself over here, which is, I mean, this is a – this is just one of those things where everything goes wrong that can possibly go wrong. Uh, Custer divides his troops into three battalions. Custer would lead uh, one of the attacks coming from the north by heading east. He then splits up uh, the command of his uh, men between uh, Major Renault, who would attack from the Reno, south. Yeah. Reno. <laughs> Reno. I'm trying to make him all Frenchy sounding and everything. Like but, uh, Target. Yeah, yeah. Target. There you go. So uh, Reno would attack from the south, and then the other uh, gentleman was uh, Frederick Bentine, who was going to have his uh, troops move in through the north. Uh, Reno stopped his attack. I apologize. Reno was uh, from yeah. Reno was from the south. Uh, Reno stops his attack 500 yards short and decides to form a skirmish line. So not really the best move when you're dealing with people who are excellent on horseback, who are able to shoot. And the, uh, these, uh, the Native American tribes, are, they all have repeating rifles, too. Yeah. And they've gotten very good with them. So There's this isn't bow and arrow of, savages. Right. There's all kinds of uh, um, speculation as to what Custer's plan was actually by him splitting his forces. A lot of people would then cast blame on him for splitting his forces, but that was standard military tactics at the time that the cavalry would split so that you could flank one. The whole idea was that they were going to ride into the village from the two ends and you know and just send these people scattering. Um, a move known as a hammer and anvil. Yeah. They would uh, they yeah. would smack um, the two groups would be into each other. Coming out catching from, everybody from in the two center. sides at once. That uh, that would just throw them into a panic but uh, that isn't what exactly happened especially mm-hmm. with Reno stopping short of the of what his direct orders were so yeah. it's like purposely stopping at the one yard line when you the end zone is right, right there you're in the red zone yeah, and so let's you, kick uh, a field goal right, we got right, three timeouts right. left but let's kick a field goal right. um, they get overrun very quickly and Reno loses over a quarter of his men in the, so now they're pretty much out of the battle because they're retreating here so um now, Custer did a temple we were talking about earlier as that hammer and anvil, and he wanted to push uh, the Native Americans on his end backing up into Reno's men. But he's outflanked by 
gentleman known as Crazy Horse. Crazy Horse. So, and Crazy Horse is a badass dude, man. The way that people talk about him and some of the things, I mean, he was, uh, that was a guy that put fear in people's hearts. Some of, uh, some of Custer's Crow, Scout, Crow Indian scouts told him before they even reached the village that, like, this is a huge, this is a huge encampment. Because it's the largest, probably the largest encampment ever of uh, Native Americans when you have the combined, all the different combined Sioux tribes. You got the Cheyenne in there, you got some Arapaho in there, um, that they're all coming together uh, for this thing. And, you know, Custer's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we, we attack, we can scatter them. And, and especially if we go right into the village and capture their women and children, they're, gonna, they're not going to uh, attack us back for fear of killing their own. Uh, type of a thing. So it's good logic. Once he, once he, once Custer comes upon the village and sees the size of it, he's like, "Holy shit!" You know, it's like that scene from Jaws. We need a bigger boat. <laughs> we need a lot more guys. Well, the uh, the famous last quick. words too. Uh, his famous last words was, uh, "Hurrah, boys! We've got them. We'll finish them up and go home to our station." Yeah. And then uh, the other joke was um, that I always heard. Uh, what was Custer's last words? That's a lot of fucking Indians. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. Um, now, just to give you the numbers here, uh, with his total group, because he had those three battalions, and Ming, I know we're going to wrap up here, man. I'm sorry. Um, so we got about 500 men uh, in total between Custer's three battalions. That's under Reno and uh, uh, Benteen. So uh, that's 500 men total, and they're going up against 1,800 Native Americans. They're warriors. They're warriors. A whole lot, yeah. I would say they're a little outnumbered yeah. there. It's, uh, I mean, it is just insanity on that one. So the numbers are not good there. The numbers are debated to this day still. But the bottom line is it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah. So There's a whole lot more of them than Yeah, you're, you're playing to beat the spread on that one. You know? <laughs> Big time. Uh, but uh, now Crazy Horse breaks through Custer's lines while Custer's trying to have that hammer and anvil. And literally all hell breaks loose. Custer's men are cavalrymen. They're now on foot. So they're essentially useless. Okay. Uh, every fourth man is holding a horse. That's like the, the cavalry thing that when things get crazy, every fourth man just holds all the horses together so you don't lose your horses. So that means one out of every four of your guys aren't able to fight. So you've now reduced your manpower already, so you're already fucking losing. And then you're losing. It's pretty much uh, you are now the one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest. <laughs> all right? A, a proverbial one there. So you've reduced the firepower and the manpower. There's absolute chaos. Uh, some people feel that uh, Custer may have possibly died very early in the fighting because that's why his army became so undisciplined. Uh, absolute chaos. Men died where they stood once Crazy Horse broke through the ranks. Many of them even just threw their weapons to the ground accepting their death. That they, There was no – it wasn't even – a. it was like uh, – it, it's just an insane thing here. If you could try to imagine Mike Tyson, okay, Mike Tyson <laughs> fighting right. Floyd Mayweather. Okay, just the size difference on that one, man. Um, but the final counts were about uh, 500 men, like we were saying, versus the 1,800 Native Americans. That ain't good, man. Uh, but what becomes known as Custer's last stand is where the few men that remained started uh, shooting their horses and stacking the dead horses' bodies in order to try to get some sort of barricade. Yeah, yeah, just as a barricade, something to hide behind. So they're trying to ride by About 40 of the men or so were making a good last stand where they were actually in the fight, you know what I mean? But, I mean, 40's not going to do shit here. This yeah. is... Not uh, against 1,800. No, and now um, the other thing, too, is we are going to get to it. So the uh, the other group, so now uh, uh, Benteen is late. He's, uh, he's tardy to the battle, if you will, because he never really links up with them. So uh, now of Custer's men... 
when they're finally, you know, the dust settles here, of Custer's men, the only people that survived the last stand. Because once Crazy Horse broke the line, that was it. Of Custer's men, only one horse and a Crow Indian scout survive Custer's last stand. That's it. Everybody who followed that man into battle that day died. Was he just left to tell the story or? Uh, well, he was an Indian scout, so I, I don't know much of his story, uh, if you will, but I, I do imagine there was a little bit more sympathy for an Indian scout rather than some of the blonde hair, blue-eyed sons of bitches that they were carving up. Fair point. Um, all of Custer's men, including his two brothers, Thomas and Boston, all died a little, uh, died a little yeah, bit. Yeah, his two brothers were with him. So those famous last words just got a little dumber. Um, but uh, now the Indians uh, claimed that they didn't know that they were fighting Custer until days later. Uh, and then once that happens, all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, I saw. I'm the one who killed him, actually. I'll kill Custer. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. so, <laughs> so several start claiming that they killed Custer. One of the guys' name was uh, Brave Bear. That Brave Bear said, uh, Brave Bear says he killed Custer. And you said, they're like, okay, well, Brave Bear, that's a pretty badass name. Maybe this guy did do it. And then another guy named Rain in the Face said that he killed Custer. That was his actual name. Yep. Rain in the Face. That dude would need to kill Custer to overcome that name. That's the boy named Sue right? we were talking about earlier. So, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's like being a, a mixed martial artist and uh, your name is Nancy. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> but... Anyway, so uh, Rain in the Face, all these other guys, they all claim to have killed him. But like we said, uh, it's thought that Custer would have died early in the fighting, hence the despair and disorganization of his men in the, the rest of the battle. When Custer's body was found, it had been mutilated, not as bad as some of the other guys. But uh, his battle wounds uh, that would have killed him was a bullet to the lower temple and then a clear shot in his heart. So Custer died pretty fast. Um, now, Custer was buried at the site of the battle for one year, uh, but then... Things started happening. People were telling the story. There was this idea of martyrdom of Custer. And uh, he was actually – his body was dug back up a year later. He was brought to West Point and his body received a full military uh, burial with honors and everything. But um, Custer's wife – you because know, this story, this was crazy news here. You finally think you're safe. You're like, we're about to get into the modern age. And then the Native Americans are like, oh, that's a problem that's going away. And then they kick this shit I mean, the ever-loving shit out of the U.S. Army and massacre your most famous Indian fighter, you know? It is not a good thing to have over there. So uh, they start playing up a thing. It's the idea that now Custer's a martyr, okay? Maybe he's a martyr. he died doing what, uh, you know, for the good of the country, you know what I mean? And these damn Indians and all that other stuff. And his wife starts capitalizing on that because she now takes a lot of the writings about the expeditions and stuff like that. She, she starts selling t-shirts and very she went for merch. You're absolutely right. right. Yeah. She went for merch. Absolutely. And she started uh, circulating some of the people were writing about him. I mean, Custer started to become this larger than life figure. And it was a uh, very cuz he was already a larger than life figure in his own time, right? But now that you've died this way, they don't have all the information. It, he remains a controversial figure to this day because people, you know, that there's a mixed legacy with that. There's a, you know, a couple of things in there. But they tried they almost were turning uh, Little Bighorn into uh, – Custer's Little Bighorn was Davy Crockett's Alamo, where it was remember the Alamo kind of a thing. Right. So, he died to the last man kind of a thing. So Yeah, right. and yeah. it's uh, and it, uh, fondly remembered by uh, President uh, Theodore Roosevelt too, who spoke to Custer's uh, widow, I believe. And um, now Anheuser-Busch – I don't know if you guys are familiar with Anheuser-Busch. Anheuser uh, yeah, I think they – think, yeah. Yeah. Anheuser-Busch. Uh, some of their product from time to time. Yes, I had a lot of it one time. I don't remember much of it. Um, but uh, Anheuser-Busch has Custer's Last Stand commemorated 
by commissioning a glorious painting to be displayed in bars and restaurants in order to inspire patriotism and reverence for the fallen Indian fighter. I mean, it is – I mean, this is beer. This is Bud White. This Bud's for you, okay? That's what they're doing. So the same way that uh, they're all about football and baseball and all that other stuff, they were doing the same thing for about – and Ming just pulled the picture of beer. I will post this up on the Instagram page for the account. It is uh, – I mean, these men – are, this is very much like Davy Crockett in the Alamo. It's a glorious charge. We're fighting the good fight here. So, But uh, President Grant, who he's had this feud with this entire time, he finally goes ahead and he says, uh, he goes, I regard Custer's massacre as a sacrifice of the troops brought on by Custer himself. Highly, highly unnecessary. So even in death, Grant's like, this guy's such a douchebag. Yeah, well, Grant didn't want to make him the martyr. Uh, and even at the court of inquiry later for uh, for Reno, um, all the accounts of the survivors from Reno's um, and Benteen's um, group all testified that uh, you know different things happened, but it, it really came down to the testimony of the two other leaders that didn't do what they were supposed to do. Reno and Benteen, and they pretty much painted a picture that saved their own ass. Documents were forged, um, maps were redrawn, and uh, it was it was a whole uh, army put on thing. You got to remember now too, this is 1876, so the United States is celebrating their hundredth anniversary. Everybody's like, "Hooray for us!" And then all of a sudden, these freaking Indians just wiped out. You know, Custer and all his men at the Little Bighorn. How can this possibly be going on 100 years from our founding and we're still fighting the Indians? What's what's going on? Yeah, it's holding you up. You're not yeah, able to get was, into the modern world when you're dealing with your uh, early on problems. And it was also an election year and when it was also a uh, – uh, the Army's appropriations bill was about to come up. And uh, there was a lot of people looking to downsize the Army because, you know, again, we're just getting over the Civil War. And so Custer helped them downsize a little well, bit. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's a few uh, – yeah, but the pensions and stuff were, uh, were a murder at that time. Um, but yeah, so now this the army appropriations bill is is put through swimmingly. Yeah, we're going to avenge we're going to avenge Custer and everything else. So build up the armies and do whatever needs to be done to to wipe them out to uh, to bring all the Indians uh, back onto the reservation, if you will. So I mean, within two years, um, the Indian wars as we knew it were pretty much over. This is a big last stand for uh, for them as well, then too. So it wasn't just Custer's last stand. Uh, some people who defended Custer, a couple of his friends, like that, they would. Uh, Nelson Miles was the guy's name. He kind of became uh, the the heir to Custer's, uh, like you know, let's rough up the Indian kind of a thing. Um, he actually was talking about how there's no way that uh, you would ever be able to win a fight because with Benteen being uh, late and then uh, Reno pulling his men back, that essentially Custer was fighting with seven twelfths of his command. All right, and majority of them were. Uh, I'm sorry. Seven twelfths were not in the battle. Right. They were even at a distance of the sound of the rifle shots. Right. So um, now Custer did make some mistakes, though. You can try to defend him if you can, but he did make some undeniable mistakes. Uh, first of all, charging in instead of waiting. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, but there's different speculation on that because, um, he, you know, the, the scouts came back and said, you know, there's a large Indian village ahead of us. Then um, you really might want to rethink this. But. Time and again in the past, they were able to skedaddle. They were able to, to sneak out and never f come into that major battle. And then, 
you know, Custer's mentality was charge and, and, and capture him and let's end this thing today kind of a thing. So, um, you know, he wasn't really supposed to go in that day on the 25th. He was supposed to wait for additional reinforcements and everything else. But uh, he was afraid that they were going to uh, slip away if he had waited. So he charged ahead and then like, holy shit, all the Indians in the world come riding in on you. Whoops. Yeah. So uh, that was the other thing. So charging in instead of waiting. Then uh, Reno's failure to press and Benteen's tardiness. Okay. Those things definitely hurt him on that one. Custer had also refused to add additional manpower to the unit because he thought too big of an army would slow him down. The other thing he decided he didn't want to have, he's a cavalry unit. This is We're fast moving. We don't need those fancy Gatling guns. Send them back over to the fort. Yeah. So literally That's no Gatling guns. Slow us down. So these guys are just going in with rifles and pistols. And this is the other crazy part. They boxed their sabers. So when you're a cavalry guy, you're able to have a saber that you could do a little bit more hand-to-hand fighting. And majority of the sabers got sent back. Because these you guys got to be fast here, man. We're doing rapid fires. So literally, you're going in with not enough manpower and all the advantages you would have over your enemy. It's almost like if the Jets were playing the Patriots and at halftime the Jets came out without helmets. <laughs> I, I, maybe I that, maybe have, that would help, though. I, I just have one word for Custer right now. A dumbass. It's a <laughs> Well, uh, Custer and his 210 men all died underneath his command. Custer had made it to the ripe old age of 36. And uh, he may be a dumbass and he may have a complicated legacy. Um, But the more you look into it, the more fascinating he gets. Um, He is immortalized with several monuments and namesakes all over the country still. So there are still supporters of Custer out there. And uh, he does have a couple of monuments. Like we said, he's interned over at West Point, which is a massive honor for the military. But he still remains that controversial figure to this day. Dad, is there anything we missed? Uh, I think we uh, pretty much got it. Okay, um, cool. Yeah, well, one of the th- one little side note. I mean, um, Grant was looking to pick a fight with the Indians to take control of the Black Hills and the potential for gold being found there. Um, that was never really uh, um, rectified, even to this day. The United States versus the Sioux Nation of the Indians. Uh, that case is still uh, under under contention um, right up until uh, mo- most recently. That um, that's, hasn't been settled. I mean, the, uh, the monies that were offered by the federal government to the Sioux Nation was never, um, never cashed, if you will, because um, they refused that deal, that there was a Supreme Court decision that— uh, Is that the money they that. used to make Mount Rushmore then? Uh, no, Mount Rushmore is a national park, but uh, it's interesting that you talk about Mount Rushmore because right around the corner from Mount Rushmore is a tribute to Crazy Horse that is Seems not appropriate, not publicly mm. funded. It was it was privately funded that he was considered one of the uh, um, leading Indian uh, leaders of 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 his time of all of all time, really, between him and Sitting Bull. Well. Uh, I think that pretty much puts a wrap to it here, guys. I want to say thank you so much to uh, Ming and Mike over at A Shared Universe. Ming, thanks for doing the sound for us today. I want to thank my sister, the meanest girl I know. Um, seriously, guys, uh, hit Carrie up if you want. She'll come over. She'll bully people for you, shove a nerd in a locker, whatever you yeah, need done. I will. Done. I will. Um, I'm for hire. I want to thank my father for, uh, I mean, this one was right up your alley. Done. I don't dirty think, deeds done dirt cheap. I think we got you fired up on this one a little hey, bit. Hey, no one said dirt cheap here. Oh, okay. I, I, I charged the premium. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, that being said, if you guys want to follow the show, we're putting them out every Tuesday. Like we said, we've been having a lot of fun with it. We just did our Facebook Live episode for Halloween that was very well received. Uh, you can follow me at, uh, at KP Burke Sucks on Twitter and Instagram, uh, KP Burke over on Facebook. And I'm very happy to say, uh, check us out on iTunes and SoundCloud, guys. If you like the show, leaving us a review really helps us out on iTunes so we can climb the charts with that one. Because uh, there's another show out there. Uh, it's similarly named, and it's not nearly as good as us. And we have a rivalry with them, okay? So we need to go ahead and get rid of this shit. Leave us a review if you can. Uh, tell a friend about it. Listen to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. It means a lot, guys. Uh, that was George Armstrong Custer, American Loser. An American Loser the day I was born An American Loser the day I was born An American Loser the day I was born, An American loser the day I was born.